Hello everyone, welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badrinath Rao, your host for this program. In the 19th century, Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the masses. In our times, mobile technologies have assumed its place. Nirvana, or salvation, now comes in the form of new technologies, the internet, social media, and mobile devices. We are so completely enamored by them that they dominate our lives to a staggering degree. According to Nielsen Company, a global leader in audience measurement, data, and analytics, in a single day, the 2.9 billion members of Facebook share 2.5 billion pieces of content. YouTube users upload 12 years worth of video. Instagram users post 40 million photos. And there are 400 million posts on Twitter. Mobile technologies are ubiquitous. They are intoxicating. What is more, they are equal opportunity influencers. They have drawn into their fold everyone from young children to the elderly. In 2011, 52% of American children had access to a mobile media device. By 2017, that number had practically doubled with nearly all, about 98% of children age eight and under living in a home with a mobile media device. Surveys suggest that some young children today are spending upward of three hours per day with media, an enormous portion of their waking time spent not doing developmentally important tasks. Media consumption jumps significantly in the teen years. A 2019 survey finds that US teens spend on average, more than seven hours a day using media for purposes other than schoolwork, while preteens, ages 8 to 12, spend nearly five hours per day on activities like watching television, online videos, computer gaming, social media, browsing and reading online, and listening to music. The same survey showed over 50% of Americans own a smartphone by age 11. And another survey by the Pew Research Center showed that 95% of US teens have access to a smartphone, whether or not they own one. Adults, too, are not immune to the siren song of media. As of 2018, Americans age 18 and older spent on average close to 80 hours per week consuming media. That means US adults are spending nearly half of every day using media. What makes this possible is media multitasking, the simultaneous use of multiple devices. Our obsession with media and mobile devices extracts a heavy toll in terms of our physical and mental well-being. Media has diminished our productivity, frayed our relationships, and left us lonely, depressed, and narcissistic. Impulsive, distracted, 
and perpetually anxious, we are losing our ability to relate to real people. New media also adversely affects children and teenagers disproportionately. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in recent years, ADHD rates increased 33% for children in age 5 to 9 years, 47% for children age 10 to 14 years, and a shocking 52% for teens age 15 to 17 years. These figures come from a fascinating new book, Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age, published by Harvard University Press this year. Its author, Dr. Carl Marcy, a psychiatrist, has spent decades tracking the insidious impact of new media and communication technologies on our lives. Dr. Marcy is a leader in the fields of social and consumer neuroscience. He's also on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and is a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Drawing on scientific evidence and neuroimaging studies, Dr. Marcy posits that new media has the potential to rewire our brains and cause immense damage to our mental health. His book explains why we have lost tech life balance and what we can do to restore it. A singular strength of Dr. Marcy's book is the 10 easy to use rules it offers for a healthy tech life balance. Advocating prudent use of mobile devices, Dr. Marcy urges us to allow our minds to wander, to be still, and to practice meditation and physical exercises. He joins me now to discuss these ideas. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Dr. Marcy. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. One of the central premises of your book, Dr. Marcy, is that our obsession with mobile technologies, with social media and so on, cell phones and things like that, is rewiring our brains and causing immense damage. What do you mean by rewiring and how does it work? Yes, uh, so obviously rewiring is a, is a metaphor. We, we don't have wires in our actual <laughs> brain, uh, but, but we do have neurons. And, and those neurons uh, are analogous to wires in some way in that when they are connected, they can exchange information and energy. Mm -hmm. And so what we know from a neuroscience perspective is that when we change our behaviors, we change our brains, essentially rewiring them, full stop. And I would argue, and I don't think it's a hard argument to make, uh, that each and every one of us uh, in the digital age is rewiring our brains around new habits that are formed with the smartphone uh, and supercomputer in our pocket. Uh, and, and that's really what drove me to buy the book, the, the, the staggering change uh, in behaviors uh, that led to then habits, and then in some cases addiction, which we'll talk about, uh, has, to, has to have consequences. And the more I looked into those consequences, the more, uh, the more surprised uh, I became. All right. Will you now, uh, let's move on to the next uh, issue you raise in your book, namely the 
dominance of media in our lives. And you say that media has a disproportionately large play in our personal lives. We use it as a mood regulator. We use it to, as an inexhaustible source of emotional arousal. And you also say that media uh, fulfill several personal and social needs, which is why people are irresistibly drawn to it. What do you have in mind? Well, first of all, uh, you know, we have to consider that media in and of itself is not a bad thing. Um, mm -hmm. Going back to town criers and, and, and cave art, we've been exchanging ideas in, in various ways. Uh, and, and media, you know, in, in its broadest sense, uh, is, is really just the exchange of information through different channels. Um, what's changed, however, uh, is that the proliferation of different types of channels uh, and the ability through uh, technology that we have a mere arm's length away uh, and access to just about every channel uh, on the planet uh, makes media more accessible than ever. And part of uh, the fulfillment that, that media offers uh, is, is news to stay current, uh, social comparisons to see how we're, we're doing with uh, other people in our lives, um, and, and entertainment, uh, whether that's via video games or, uh, or, or other kinds of videos or, uh, or the like. Now, uh, again, by that by itself, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. What what shocked me, and you gave some excellent examples in your introduction of of staggering statistics uh, of how Americans, on average, adults even, have gone from you know roughly uh, forty five hours a full time job a week uh, consuming media uh, to nearly double that, upwards of eleven hours a, a day. Um, and 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 how do how do we do that? How do we find time? Uh, well, you mentioned one, which is media multitasking, because uh, there's no way we can consume 11 hours uh, of media in a day uh, and get anything else done, right? So we're watching TV and we're on our phone, uh, or we're in the elevator and we're on our phone, or we're folding clothes and we're listening uh, to, to, to the radio, um, or uh, more insidiously, uh, we're at work uh, and we're looking at the, the sports casting, uh, or our children are doing homework uh, and they're on social media. And, and those, that's where things start to get a, a little bit challenging. Because uh, we know from study after study after study after study uh, that multitasking of, of any sorts uh, decreases processing time and increases error rates, right? So you, you get this uh, double effect. Now, what's so insidious about uh, multitasking of any type um, is that it's a brain trick because we are working harder and the, and the brain imaging shows that, but we're not working smarter. Uh, so as we develop more and more the habit of, of media multitasking, uh, which is consuming any media and doing anything else, uh, we, we are definitely having an impact on, on our brains. A shocking piece of information that you provide in your book concerns the media attention span of young adults. You say that young adults have media attention span close to that of three-year-olds. Are our young adults mentally stunted? This is scary, is it not? It, it's, a, it's a shocking finding, um, and it's, it's one of the uh, few uh, pieces of information in the book that's, that's truly novel, because we never published it in a peer-reviewed journal uh, elsewhere. But this is work that uh, I initially did with a company called Interscope Research that I was a founder and CEO of, and then later we uh, repeated, five years later, uh, when I was the global uh, chief neuroscientist for Nielsen. And what we, well, first of all, what we did 
was we literally put little cameras uh, on, on glasses uh, so that people uh, could essentially give us a day in their life. And so we recorded from the time they got up to the time we went to bed uh, a couple days of a, a group of adults uh, from early 20s to mid 50s. Um, and then we divided them into two groups. Uh, the so-called digital natives, the younger group had grown up in a world of connected devices in the internet, uh -huh. and an older group, the so-called digital immigrants, of which I'm a card-carrying member, uh, <laughs> who, who actually remember a world, you know, before everything was plugged into the internet. And, um, and, and then we just did something very simple, uh, is we measured how long it took for their eyes and their gaze, essentially, to move from one media device to another. And then we timed that and we called that a, a, a media task switch. Mm -hmm. And so you're doing work in attention span. It's important for you and your audience to understand that you need to compare apples to apples, right? So my attention span uh, while I'm doing some, uh, you know, my taxes might be much longer than, than when I'm, you know, uh, playing, playing cards with my son. Um, so, so we have to compare apples to apples. So this was a true apples to apples comparison. We had uh, adults of different ages, uh, in their lives with the same technology. And what shocked us was the amount of uh, times we saw their eye gaze shifting. And that's this measure of media attention that we found. And then what shocked us uh, was the difference between the older group, the so-called digital immigrants, and the younger group in terms of their attention span. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, was, it, was, uh, it was almost double uh, in some respects. And, and that was, uh, got, got us some headlines. Now, when we repeated the study, the real question was, well, could this just be an age effect, right? Because we know that the, the brain uh, matures well into its late 20s uh, and constantly uh, evolves and, and matures throughout the lifespan. Um, so when we did the study five years later, that's when we were really sort of surprised that uh, the good news is, is that, in fact, people's attention span does get higher as we age. So mm -hmm. once again, we found that the older group was higher than the younger group. Um, the bad news is five years later, both groups' attention span was lower. And then to your point about three-year-olds, we found an old study in 2008 uh, that took three-year-olds and put them in front of a TV and, <laughs> and gave them a toy and just measured their eyes going back and forth. And I said, well, this is a very similar example. Um, and, when, and, and, and what you're quoting is the fact that the young adult's attention span was closer to the three-year-olds than it was to the fully mature adult. And that's what's shocking. Well, let me ask a quick follow-up question. This finding, as shocking as it is, should alert us to the dangers of unrestricted use of uh, so media, cell phones, and so on. And if we don't take proactive steps now, might we have a whole generation of people virtually uh, incapable of sustained uh, focused work, do you think? Well, I, I, I suspect we already have. And, and part of the argument in, in the book <laughs> is, sadly, uh, well, if you look at the, the rates, as you quoted earlier, uh, of just about every major mental illness, right? So ADHD going up, depression, anxiety going up, um, sadly, uh, suicide and substance abuse going up uh, at every age group. Um, something is happening. Now, I'm not saying that uh, the smartphone is responsible for, for all of that, um, but I think there's pretty compelling evidence that it is contributing to a, a, a significant trend. 
And when you then think about uh, what's going on in the brain, as I do as a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist, um, all roads lead to the prefrontal cortex. Uh, and the prefrontal cortex is the uh, most mature uh, and most complex part of the human brain, and it takes the longest to mature. Uh, and so I think that's worth, you know, talking about a little bit for, for your audience. Absolutely. Uh, singular strength of your book is that you predicate all your uh, observations on solid, incontrovertible scientific evidence. And in this context, as you just now mentioned, you talk about the power of the prefrontal cortex. And you said that it is the most evolved part of the brain. Now, what is the prefrontal cortex? And why do you assign such importance to it? You say it is the seat of executive functions, and you call it the orchestrator of our neuronal uh, music. What is this? That's right. Yeah, so I, I use another metaphor when it comes to the prefrontal cortex of the, the idea of the, if your brain is the orchestra, the prefrontal uh -huh. cortex is, is the conductor. Okay. Uh, and so um, other metaphors say the prefrontal cortex is the CEO of, of, of the business of your, uh, <laughs> of your brain. Um, I, I, pref I prefer the conductor metaphor because it, it suggests that when, when, when all the instruments are playing appropriately and together, there's a certain harmony. Uh, and, and when they're not, there's cacophony. Uh, and and I, I think that's the concern with all the uh, media multitasking uh, and the reliance on uh, media and, and our uh, smartphones and, and, and entertainment as a mood regulator mm -hmm. uh, to sort of keep ourselves calm. Uh, we end up doing damage to this area of the brain. And so if I may just uh, show your audience a, a couple of images here. Um, what you see here, uh, the red part mm -hmm. uh, is what is uh, classically known as a prefrontal cortex. So it sits behind uh, your forehead and your eye sockets, um, and it's very fragile. It's also part of the brain that gets injured in head injuries very easily uh, be because of the forces that go against it. Um, and it's really very precious. And if, and if you think for a moment that the human brain at, at birth uh, is only 10% developed, that means 90% of brain development occurs outside of the womb. Mm -hmm. uh, this is why we've evolved to form strong social bonds uh, and, and connections with one another. And the prefrontal cortex is really critical to that. And among the functions of the prefrontal cortex is to regulate and, and talk to and modulate and control and dampen our emotions and our reward centers. Mm -hmm. And this image shows uh, a little bit of a translucent. You can see underneath the cortex, those folds in the brain, um, and you're looking at the same direction here. So the, um, uh, the, the deep structures here, the midbrain, uh, is where the emotion centers and the reward centers reside. Uh, and so one of the big functions of the prefrontal cortex is to talk to those areas, uh, and, and as the conductor metaphor suggests, keep them in harmony keep them in balance. Mm -hmm. so we need a strong and mature prefrontal cortex uh, or else we're going to get in trouble. And what happens uh, is when you look at the brains of, of uh, children with no ADHD uh, on the left uh, versus uh, children with ADHD, uh, you see, and this is a pet image, so it's really showing the, the energy and activity uh, in the neurons. Um, anyone uh, you don't need a neuroscience degree to see that the, the healthy brain mm -hmm. is much more active uh, and it's more, much more active in, in every single area. Uh, but if you look carefully, uh, the top part of the brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, shows the most decrease. 
Um, and that's because one of the deficits of ADHD uh, is a weak prefrontal cortex uh, that doesn't allow us to direct our attention and to eliminate extraneous stimuli. And then one more image just to, because uh, I know we'll talk about this at some point, uh, is that fine line between habits and addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an example of, uh, again, another pet image. The top part, uh, again, is the prefrontal cortex. You see the healthy brain, lots of yellow, uh, rich colors, contrast, and then uh, the addicted brain on, on the right uh, shows quite the opposite, uh, a real diminishing of activity. Uh, and that's what, what concerns me the most when we think about how uh, every single uh, mental health issue really does come back to the connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and those deep structures in the brain. So any damage we do to this, meaning our prefrontal cortex, is gonna lead to higher rates of, of mental health issues. And I believe our habits are contributing in significant ways uh, to a diminished uh, prefrontal cortex. All right, let's move on to a question that Great, great emphasis in your book, namely the importance of forming social connections, uh, social developing social bonds. Now you know that our social connections are in a state of uh, flux. A lot of people have large numbers of virtual friends. My students have two, three thousand <laughs> friends on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and uh, most people these days have few uh, friends in real life. And you cite uh, Robin Dunbar, the evolutionary psychologist, to argue that the human brain's capacity to forge meaningful relationships is restricted to about 150. And so are you suggesting, therefore, that a, having virtual relationships is meaningless and wasteful, and B, that by doing so, we are uh, putting undue uh, pressure on our prefrontal cortex. Uh, the, short, the short answer is yes. Um, okay. <laughs> the, the, the longer answer is, uh, you know, Facebook and, and social media uh, has really done a disservice by, by calling these very tenuous connections to, in many cases, absolute strangers, uh, friends, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because it loses uh, its meaning uh, in, in the world. Now, you mentioned Robin Dunbar. I was very inspired by, by his work. And, and just for your audience, uh, a, a quick primer. Uh, Robin Dunbar uh, was studying social networks and was uh, looking across species at sort of the, the, the size of, of groups, uh, you know, how much... Uh, you know how many other uh, chimpanzees do chimpanzees hang out with, and 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 humans, and 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 even schools of fish, and and really looked across uh, a lot of different species, and found that there was a, a trend, uh -huh. and that trend was that the the larger the brain got, the larger the social groups got, and he was very intrigued by this, and he started to look more deeply uh, at uh, humans. And, and notice that even within humans, some people's brains, uh, particularly an area of the prefrontal cortex, uh, was correlated with the size of their social network. 
And when he combined that with other research, which shows that most people can handle about, you know, three to five truly intimate people in their lives, mm -hmm. uh, you know, really sharing everything with. Um, and then there's another circle uh, of between 30 and 50. And then you get to what, uh, what we call the Dunbar number of 150, that you realize that those aren't hard, fast numbers. It's plus or minus a few on either side, depending on, well, depending on your prefrontal cortex. Uh, so, so what uh, what he describes uh, is that there's there's a particular area of the prefrontal cortex which is very connected to our emotion centers that matures as we go through life uh, and gives rise to these types of and our ability to have relationships. Now, enter social media, mm -hmm. enter distraction from uh, the supercomputer in our pocket, uh, enter the loss of face-to-face -face communication and communicating mostly through text and other means. Um, and, and you have a recipe for disaster because we have a brain that's evolved uh, to, to do a little bit like we're doing, uh, which is look in each other's eyes, nod our head, mm -hmm. uh, and communicate in, in a reciprocal way uh, in real time. Uh, and that's lost in, in social media. And that, that's the concern. Just to get this uh, straight, uh, Dr. Marcy, so you are saying that having a large number of virtual friends is tantamount to wasting our uh, mental resources. Is that correct? I think to the extent that people are catering to large groups and audiences um, that are beyond our social, our true social networks, yes, it, it's, it's a waste of time uh, at the minimum it may actually be contributing to uh, the depression, loneliness, lack of empathy, uh, and increased narcissism that we see across society in significant ways. I mean, think about it, right? There's no consequences online when you send off uh, criticisms. Uh, and often uh, you get instant feedback uh, in the form of likes uh, that trigger, we know, trigger the reward centers of the brain and make you want to do it uh, again and again and again. Um, so, so these companies are very smart and sophisticated, and they're tapping the same reward structures and, and neural networks that, that I describe in the book, uh -huh. uh, albeit in, in unhealthy ways uh, that we all need to be aware of. All right, let's move on to uh, the impact of mobile media technologies on infants and young children. You say that zero to four is a very critical uh, period in a child's life. That's when the brain develops at breakneck speed, uh, to use your expression. And you therefore say that exposing a child to mobile media devices at that stage is like leaving the child malnourished. And you give the example of uh, raising a child in of, of a child in an orphanage. Uh, in fact, you talk about this very interesting uh, uh, study that was done on orphans in Romania. Uh, now, are you therefore suggesting that people with children should uh, not have any media in their house, like television and so on? Because if there is television, it is on quite a lot. In fact, you mentioned in your book that, what, 42% of families have television on virtually all the time. And so infants and uh, uh, young children get exposed. So are we to take it that 
that must come to an end, that we should get rid of media when we have children? Well, well there's a lot to unpack there, but let's, let's start with, uh, I think, uh, at a high level, uh, again, another core premise of the book, which is in order to tackle this, I think, enormous problem and enormous challenge, mm -hmm. we, need think, we need to think developmentally. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, you know, the brain of a zero to three-year-old is very different than a, a tween or a teen. Okay. let alone an adult, mm -hmm. right? And we now understand from a neuroscience and brain science perspective uh, an awful lot about those differences. So by using the lens and information we have uh, from neuroscience, mm -hmm. uh, we can actually make recommendations that are tailored and age-appropriate, right? So the reason the book goes through the developmental stages, as, as you suggest, and we start where we all started at birth, um, is because um, that's really the, the best way uh, to think about how our relationship with technology and how to create tech life balance at every age. Okay, so that's the basic idea. At, at now, uh, you, you referred to the Romanian orphanage. Uh, this is Nicolae Ceausescu, who was the brutal dictator mm -hmm. uh, who, through an uncontrolled experiment, uh, ended up having you know hundreds and hundreds of of infants uh, who were given up for adoption in orphanages where they were just poorly staffed. Um, and, and so we, we learned uh, that um, something that going back to Freud we had hypothesized is that really physical touch and face-to-face -face interaction is critical for brain mm -hmm. development, right? So, so when, when, uh, when, when he was shot uh, and killed and, and the West came rushing in, uh, in, in, the, in the early 70s, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, did is we, we started to study these kids and we were able to compare children in Romania who were raised in these orphanages versus those who were raised uh, in, uh, who were given up for adoption, but raised in a proper home. Uh, and we found staggering differences in their brain development, not the least of which was, of course, their prefrontal cortex. Um, so that's number one. We know that early childhood is critically important. What, what, the, what the research also shows uh, is that while kids can, at an early age, between zero and three, sit in front of a, a television and look like they're paying attention, and look like they're learning, it turns out they're not, right? And we know that from Baby Einstein, uh, the failed video <laughs> series, you know, that was really designed, and I remember growing up uh, that th they were around, um, they, they failed miserably uh, because despite their popularity, um, not only were kids not learning, they were falling behind. And they were falling behind because they were literally, as you say, wasting time sitting in front of a screen rather than talking to their, their, their caregiver, their parent, their sibling, playing, doing all the things that we know for uh, you know, a half a million years uh, leads to a mature brain. Um, we've stopped doing a lot of those. So that's really the lesson of zero to three. And then we've sort of marched through um, the developmental stages and we talk about uh, different lessons. So I try to highlight you know, one, one or two key things um, at each developmental stage that we need to be aware of. And zero to three, the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, basically recommends zero screen time with one exception, uh, and that's FaceTime with the loved one, that video chats. That's right, that's right. And you, you, uh, you have very little use for any so-called educational videos, e-books, and so on. You think that they don't contribute in any way to a child's education. Well, let, let's qualify that. So, so up to age three, yes, I have very little use for, for anything because we know that kids can't learn from a two-dimensional screen and take it to a three-dimensional world, uh -huh. right? You know, so right around age three, uh -huh. that starts to change. 
Um, and here's where actually um, I talk about long form professionally produced educational content, right? The, the Sesame Streets and Dora right. Explorers of the world um, actually have been shown to, to, to help kids uh, development. Um, they, they can learn from them uh, and they, they, they can take good lessons. Um, and importantly, they have a beginning, middle and an end, mm -hmm. right? The problem is that kids in the three to five year old age, and I know this because I, I have kids that age and have been through that, uh -huh. um, they, they want YouTube, right? And they want to pick what they're watching and they want short, snackable, unprofessional, <laughs> uneducational content um, that really just dysregulates them and teaches them nothing. Um, and I don't know what they're watching because they're all on their own screen. So one of the recommendations I make for uh, for the three to five year mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, you know, you want to always be focusing on reading and we can talk about it if you like. Um, uh, but one hour a day of, of video content as a reward uh, is, is, is fine. Um, but it's best if it's on a big screen and it's professionally produced educational content. Why on a big screen? So I can see what you're watching. Um, right. Because we also know that uh, uh, watching with an adult mm -hmm. also helps learning for children. So media with an adult is better than media alone. One development in our times that concerns you a great deal has to do with what you discussed a moment ago, namely uh, media multitasking. And yep. you are opposed to it. You say that those that uh, or watch media while doing something else, don't uh, do anything uh, well because they have a problem of filter failure. They cannot filter out extraneous information. But I'm sure you agree that uh, received wisdom says that multitasking is a virtue, that, that the more you can do several things, the more versatile you are. And you seem to be going against it and saying media multitasking is pointless. Well, I have no problem with serial monotasking. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, you, know, you, you do one thing at a time and then you switch and you do the, the next thing. Um, if your goal is productivity and performance. Now, if you don't care about productivity and performance, you could multitask all day long. Um, that's going to have consequences, uh, particularly for your prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I, and I think it's important, and this gets a little nuanced, but there is a difference between folding laundry and, and listening, you know, to the radio, right? That's a very light task uh, with um, a single channel of media, audio only. Um, you know, that's probably perfectly fine. Um, what, what I'm concerned about is that the more habit we develop around doing any, consuming any media and doing something else, it turns into... I'm at work and I also have a news feed open or I'm doing homework uh -huh. and I'm checking and I'm checking social media or God forbid I'm driving a car <laughs> and I'm answering a text right and, and that's happening far too often and it's and it's happening with deadly context uh, consequences um, you know and so that that's my concern so I'm not saying all multitasking is bad I'm saying be careful it's it's habit forming and you know, we, we, we have to think about the context in which we are doing that multitasking and the type of task we're doing. We will come to multitasking while driving momentarily. Uh, let's now turn to the impact of uh, mobile media technologies on teenagers. You say during teen years, the brain undergoes significant changes 
and you mentioned that it simultaneously becomes modular and interconnected. What does this mean? Well, so for a long time, the, the teenage brain was an enigma. Mm -hmm. uh, right? And, and uh, we're all familiar with, um, you know, the impulsive, emotional teenager who goes running off in a storm um, and, and, <laughs> and, take, and takes risk. Right. And, and that um, and that that all turns out to be true. Um, the question was, why? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's happening? And it turns out uh, underneath what what looks to some parents to be chaos uh, is actually very elegant neurobiology. Uh, so in the teen years, as, as hormones are, are, are flushing and, and the brain is essentially remodeling, uh, there, there are a number of things happening, but two are really critically important. Um, and the first one is that the brain uh, is becoming more interconnected, right? So, so a number of, of neuronal connections are getting stronger and more robust, um, but at the same time, connections that aren't being used as much or maybe aren't so necessary as we get older, um, are being lost. Uh, and the example here is, uh, this is called neuronal pruning. Mm -hmm. uh, think of, uh, you know, sculpting a, a rock. You're taking, you know, pieces away so that form develops. Um, but at the same time, the brain is also becoming more modular, right? So, so the prefrontal cortex and the emotion centers and the reward centers and the vision centers and the, and the auditory centers are, are actually becoming more, more robust and, and thicker as well. Um, and, and that's what we typically don't see in nature. In nature, things either become more interconnected mm -hmm. or more modular and less connected. Right. In humans, we become simultaneously more interconnected and more modular. And that is what leads to adulthood. You know, when you and I were growing up and, and, and someone said something not so nice uh, to us or about us or to a friend or about a friend, you know, we were going to run into him in the hallway and, and, <laughs> and there was going to be some exchange of words. And, and that's how you dealt with dealing. Now, you know, you can be a world away and, and make fun of someone. There's no consequences to that. So, so that's one of the other challenges. You know, you, you have social interaction without intimacy and without consequence. And, and that's what I worry about. And I think that's what Professor Twenge is worried about as well. Let's now turn to the situation with adults. One would think that as adults and as people with mature brains, that they would be responsible with mobile uh, technologies. But that is not the case. I mean, they tend to use virtually half their lives uh, meddling with uh, mobile uh, devices. Does this indicate that as a people, we are addicted to digital technology? Well, first of all, no one's immune to the habits uh, and, and the risks that, uh, that children are uh, because these devices are so powerful. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, uh, we all know people who we worry about because uh, they're always on their phone. Um, and I even worry about myself sometimes. <laughs> I, I get caught up, right, in, in, in the news or, or work or, or something, and I, I ignore my surroundings uh, to the detriment of the relationships with the people I'm with. Um, and and we, we can talk about that. Uh, but so, so adults aren't immune. The other thing to keep in mind with adults uh, is, is that we, uh, although we do have a more mature brain, um, you know, we're dealing with a, a fair amount of stress uh -huh. and we're dealing with work and we're dealing with kids and, and, and whatever is in our lives. Um, and so 
we use uh, as adults media as a mood regulator as much as anyone else, right? We want it to be a distraction for us. We want it to be titillation for us. We want it to be stimulation for us. Um, we want it to be informative. We want it to be something that we can share ideas on. Uh, I mean, again, it's so many things to so many people. It's it's hard. It's not surprising that even adults can can fall prey. Now, are we all addicted? No. Um, and we have to be very careful with the word addiction, mm-hmm. uh, because if we if we say that uh, anything that triggers the reward centers, uh, you know, is giving us an addiction, then it means everything and nothing at all, uh, because lots of things trigger the reward centers, um, natural and unnatural. So uh, what 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 I like to to tell folks to think about, and this is where I think the the science and the academy needs to go, which is to do a better job understanding who's at risk. Um, and we know something about who's at risk. It tends to be people who have had uh, negative adverse events or life events growing up, mm-hmm. uh, which might be, you know, might be divorce, might be um, uh, a physical accident. Um, you know, in some countries it, it might be war, uh, or or even in this country it might be exposure to gunfire or witnessing, you know, some sort of violence. I mean, th- these are all things that can can very negatively impact the brain and and make it vulnerable to to future states. Um, or, or any form of mental, mental health issue. People who are depressed, anxious, uh, for other reasons, uh, are also more vulnerable. Certainly people with ADHD uh, can be more vulnerable to, uh, to addiction with, with video games or other, uh, other shopping, um, online pornography. You know, these are the things that uh, tend to get people uh, in trouble. So we need to do a better job screening, uh, asking people questions, you know, looking for signs and symptoms uh, so that we can develop the right treatments and, and get people who need help the, the help they need. One significant issue you flag in your book concerns the erosion of critical human faculties such as empathic concern, perspective taking, and so on. You say that digital technologies have diminished our ability to show empathic concern. We find it harder to uh, see things from someone else's perspective. And what is more, you say that new technologies have made us more narcissistic. This is very alarming, is it not? Uh, Yes, it is. Um, But if you think about the ability to uh, have empathy Uh uh, or the ability to mentalize uh, a future state or uh, the ability to sort of tell yourself, you know, maybe, maybe you're getting a little out of control uh, with, with whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. All of those, all of those functions are predicated on a healthy prefrontal cortex, right? So, so if all roads lead to the diminishing of this critical part of our brain, uh, then, then we shouldn't be surprised that we're vulnerable uh, to the loss of empathy, the loss of theory of mind, um, and and more likely to to be lonely or, or, or otherwise, um, you know it's interesting. One of the studies I talk about in the book uh, really struck me uh, is they they were talking about loneliness mm-hmm. uh, and the two people uh, who were who you know were categorically lonely you know lived alone and, and mm-hmm. said they were and then you know healthy age matched people in other ways um, and they showed them uh, a bunch of images of faces. And then they did something very interesting. The researchers digitized mm-hmm. some of the images to the point where you could barely tell it was human. Mm-hmm. So you've got this, this set of images that range from, you know, a, a 
pure normal photograph of a smiling human to something you could barely even make out because it's been so uh, digitized that it's that it's a, a face. Um, and what was interesting is that they had people rate how human the image was. <laughs> okay. And the more the more lonely people were, the more likely they were to rate the non-human images as human. Thereby suggesting that we have an well, intense that, longing that, to relate to people. Well, that number one. Number two, we can lose that ability to identify the humanness in ourselves as we become more socially isolated, right? So we don't even recognize humanity uh, when we become less human uh -huh. ourselves, right? And so when you ask me, do I worry about you know people's uh, inability to empathize? Um, because you know, merely having a device like this on the table has been shown to interrupt social interaction, right? The, the mere presence, let alone using it. Um, yeah, that concerns me. Right. Now, let's uh, move to a topic that is uh, interesting and, again, disturbing, and that has to do with the discussion on habits and addictions. And you say in this context that the context matters a lot, and you cite the study on uh, military personnel returning from Vietnam, some of whom had drug addiction issues, and when the context changed, they were able to give up their addiction. Can you tell us more about that, please? Sure. Classic research uh, in, in the early 70s, uh, as we were winding down uh, in, in Vietnam, mm -hmm. where there was massive access to uh, opiates. Um, and many, many of uh, the American soldiers were, uh, were quite addicted. Uh, President Nixon actually did something interesting. He set up a commission and brought a psychiatrist over to Vietnam to screen every soldier before they came home and basically screen them for are they addicted or not. And then they tracked them uh, for a year uh, and because they were worried that as soon as they got home, um, you know, they would, they would relapse. And importantly, the ones who were addicted, they detoxed them in Vietnam and then brought them home. Mm -hmm. And what was shocking is only 5% of them relapsed within a year. And everyone's like, oh my God. In fact, people didn't even believe the study. Like how you know, people are so addicted, how could they not, you know, relapse? Uh, well, number one, opiates weren't quite as ubiquitous back then as they are now. Uh, so access we know is an issue. But, but number two, this, this led to uh, an entire literature on the important of con importance of context uh, when it comes to habits and addiction, right? So, you know, we, we probably all who, who drive been in a situation where we're driving a route to work, but we're not actually going to work and we find ourselves turning uh, down the road to work, even though we're supposed to go the other way, right? So the context that we see actually drives our behavior so powerfully we don't even think about it. Um, and so what happens when you remove people from the context that was driving that addiction, the stress, the access, uh, the loneliness, everything that was going on for these, uh, these veterans uh, in this terrible war, um, lo and behold, their, their brain is fine. Now, the reason I brought that up mm -hmm. is because one of the other insidious challenges with this amazing technology is that it's a context that's always with us. So when we develop the habit at home of you know, looking at our phones while we're watching TV, and the next thing you know, we're in our car and we're turning it on, that context has moved with us, right? The same app ping and message ring that happens in the home in, in the safety of my couch while I'm watching TV, 
happens in a car, all of a sudden it's not that safe. No. And yet right. even I, who have written the book, am compelled to pick it up and, and, and look. Um, and, and that's what I, that's why context is so important. And then we have to understand that addiction around these devices is going to be really hard, A, to recognize because it's easy to hide, and B, to treat because I can treat your video game addiction on your phone, but I can't make your phone go away because who's going to live without a phone? <laughs> You're right? absolutely right. This is where things get tricky really fast, and that's, this is where the future work needs to go. Let us now move to the most uh, significant uh, part of your book, namely the 10 rules you suggest for achieving tech life balance. Now, the first rule is stop multitasking. We've talked about it, so I shall not spend time on it. But the second one is about choosing what you call JOMO over FOMO, the joy of missing out over the fear of missing out. What does this mean and why is it important? Yeah, so I, I, I think the premise here, first of all, is I, I didn't want this book to be depressing because people are depressed <laughs> enough. Um, and and I, I realized that if all roads are leading to the prefrontal cortex, what if we designed recommendations, in this case, 10 of them, to support our prefrontal cortex, to make it more robust, right? So, so choosing JOMO over FOMO uh, is, is really taking advantage of, of what's called temporal discounting. Uh -huh. uh, temporal discounting is this complicated uh, behavioral economics uh, idea that um, if I offer you $50 now or $100 in a month, most people will take $50 now. Why? Well, because they're worried in a month, well, maybe I won't see you or it'll get lost or I'll change my mind. And so I'm discounting that $100, which I'm guaranteeing to you down to 50. So that $100 becomes worth 50. That's a pretty big discount, right? Right. So I think, well, I think part of what social media does is it discounts the power of, of strong social bonds and, and human relationships. And it says, you know, that little titillation, that little like, that little connection you're getting on social media uh -huh. is worth more because it's instant than stepping away and, and calling a friend and going and having coffee and putting your phone away even though when you actually do that, you actually get more joy. So the fear that's driving us to check all the time uh, needs to be reframed as the joy of actually uh, connecting with other humans. Let's move to uh, another rule that you have about not falling for uh, compulsion loops and clickbait. Now that point is well taken, uh, doctor. However, I was personally a bit dismayed when, while describing this rule, you talked about food porn. Now, I love cooking and I watch uh, the internet for, for recipes and so on. Um, I suddenly wondered if, if uh, I was doing something wrong. Can you tell us more about this? Well, uh, you know, whether it, it's wrong or not, it's distracting. Uh, and, and I think uh, the point about, uh, you know, food porn is that, you know, succulent images of ice cream <laughs> sundaes and, and, you know, delicious meals um, are, are just as distracting uh, as, you know, maybe a scantily clad male or female uh, to get your attention, right? Or, or, or a, well, a well sort of worded um, headline, right? These are all just 
designed mm-hmm. to grab our attention, right? So, so I'm sure that through your cookies and your digital exhaust, uh, the, the, the folks who sell advertising online have figured out uh, that Dr. Rao loves food uh, and, and serves <laughs> up uh, images. Uh, so you just got to be careful that, you know, your work uh, and you see some of these things that oh, they're just trying to get me. Uh, I'll look at that later uh, and I'll deal with that later. And there's a time and place for that. that that's really uh, all I'm saying is that, um, you know, titillation comes in many forms. Yes, and, and ju- just for the sake of clarity, I mean, I don't allow this to interfere with my work, but your point is very well taken. Now, let's move on to another uh, rule you have uh, about preferring paper over pixels. You mm. want people to read books, physical books, rather than uh, e-readers, because books uh, have what you call haptic feedback, and uh, an e-reader just does not have that. And also you say that uh, e-readers tend to affect our sleep patterns. Can you tell us more about this rule? Right, so you know, shameless plug for the book. This is an actual <laughs> book. Well, it's got pages in it. It, it closes, uh, I can hold it. Um, and as I move through it, the haptics are the, the turning of the page um, the feeling of progression, the ability to go back and forth, uh, and, and, and really just the, the, the whole experience of it, uh, turns out to be very different than, than an e-reader. We are almost out of time, Dr. Marcy. I have two quick questions with respect to uh, putting down the phone while driving. I was struck by the fact that you say that even hands-free uh, conversation using Bluetooth is not something you would recommend because uh, it interferes with our ability to focus. Uh, A lot of people tend to assume that if they are using the Bluetooth, they're fine. That's not the case, is it? Well, again, um, let's look at the data. Uh, And and what we know is that when you watch, you know, you have cameras in cars and they Uh can can do this stuff, uh, is that if I'm on a a hands-free call, and, and I'm talking to you and you're in another state and I'm driving along, um, you have no idea that a, a car just pulled out uh, or, or a kid just ran into the street or someone on their bike just cut me off. Um, so you're going to keep chatting away while I have to make that adjustment. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas if there's someone in the car that I'm talking to, um, they're going to regulate and they're going to stop as that same stimulus occurs and that's going to help give me feedback. Um, so, so I'm not saying that talking hands-free on the phone is as distracting as texting and driving. Uh, what I'm saying is, d- don't don't confuse having a conversation with someone sitting next to you in a car with having someone a conversation with someone on the phone as being equal. They're they're not. They're, there's risk uh, associated with talking to people when they're not on the phone. To the point where, by the way, insurance companies now are starting to look at phones at car accidents uh, and and you know really taking very seriously when the phone has been in use right before an mm-hmm. accident. Your final point about emancipating ourselves from the scourge of excessive media consumption is to let go. You want people to let their minds wander. You want them to quit compulsively doing things. You recommend stillness, meditation, and physical exercises. This is almost like Eastern philosophy, is it not? Why do you think these uh, suggestions are very relevant and essential? 
Well, I, I, I would maybe put the question back to you. I mean, how much are Eastern philosophers concerned about their use of social media and their prefrontal cortex, right? Probably not so much, um, and, and there's a reason. Yeah, so I, I use the example to make it come alive of Archimedes in the bathtub in Roman days and, right. and trying to solve a difficult math problem uh, and, and only achieving that in a relaxed state where he's not distracted. Right. And study after study after study uh, shows that when people uh, are relaxed, give their brain a break, uh, are, are able to do something maybe creative uh, or light uh, before a difficult task, they will perform better. So it's the complete opposite of multitasking, where speed of performance goes down, error rate goes up. Mm -hmm. When we relax our brain and rest our brain, whether through meditation or exercise or yoga uh, or, or just a walk in nature, um, our performance goes up. Why? Because we're actually feeding our prefrontal cortex. We're giving it a break. We're giving it a chance to recover. Look, it's just like any other uh, muscle, and the metaphor of the brain as a muscle is, is not a bad one. Um, you know, we sleep a third of our lives, um, and we need to protect our sleep. Uh, and that's another reason why we got to watch those e-books and, and any screens before bedtime because of the, the blue light it emits disrupts our sleep. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, but it does. Um, yeah, we, we've got to protect our brains. And uh, the recommendations of the book are really designed to do that. Um, and my hope is that we can start a discussion about uh, a digital literacy and have a common expectation that protecting our brain really is in service of ourselves and in service of humanity. You also make an interesting point about how meditation increases the flow of blood to the prefrontal cortex and uh, in some way boosts it. Is that true? Yes. In fact, we're, we're now learning that different types of meditation do different things to different areas of the brain. Uh, so I'm imagining a time when, you know, as a psychiatrist, I might be able to recommend uh, a different type of uh, meditation because, you know, you need help with focus versus someone else who needs help stilling their brain and just sort of, you know, relaxing and turning off. Um, those might be two different uh, approaches to meditation uh, that I can help guide you or recommend someone who can guide you to do it. Dr. Marcy, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to enlighten our viewers. I appreciate your insights and your time. Thank you very much. The pleasure was mine. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. In the coming weeks, we will discuss dreams of a lifetime, how who we are shapes how we imagine our future, published by Princeton University Press this year. In this book, sociologists Karen Cerullo and Janet Wayne explore how social status shapes our dreams of the future and inhibits the lives we envision for ourselves. They argue that what and how we dream and whether we believe our dreams can actually come true are tied to our social class, gender, race, age, and life events. Watch out for an exciting discussion in the coming weeks. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.